Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. We did it last week together, we're no longer doing it together. <laughs> Didn't you know, Covid is over. Live your life as is, normal. The king is dead, long live the king. Yeah. You've got one week of being in a room together. Uh, now David's isolating. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I had last night, five of my colleagues uh, tested positive for Covid, which added on to the people just a couple of days prior both bands that i'd put on tested positive for covid and yep. total disarray uh total disconnect from reality and then as i was coming home i was walking by these two guys walking along drinking tinnies and one of them saying by the way that fucking flu is worse than covid this year now man this is ridiculous <laughs> it's unbelievable unfucking believable how he's doing? <laughs> Apart from that, I'm fine. That is Chris Cusack, and the last person that spoke there is David Weaver. Hi there. Sorry, I didn't need to just get out of my system. Yeah, because if, it, you're it, better. It, if I'd caught up with them, I would have said something because I have been I've got into an argument with a guy when I was trying to buy a sandwich. He was giving it all that as well. I was like, I was like, and I was about three back in the queue as well, but I just stuck my head in the corner. I was like, he was like talking to the girl at the counter, and she's kind of like clearly just trying to humour her. I'm like, here, mate, she doesn't want to tell you you're a fucking crackpot, but I'll tell you you're a fucking crackpot. Now fuck off so we can all get our sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like that much. I can imagine. I, I can just see this comedy moment of like, uh, you know, just like this guy and then a, bl- a cut to a blank wall and you stuck your head down like... Why is this taking so long? And why can I hear pish? <laughs> yeah. So here we are again yeah. um, over the internet. Um, it's a shame. I kind of miss you. I miss you already. Yeah, it was nice yeah. to actually see you in the flesh for one day. A whole day. Yeah. A whole bit of a day. Um, speaking of people in the flesh, I want to, I want to thank the entire population of Greece <laughs> uh, because for the last week we've been in the iTunes iTunes chart in Greece, which is awesome. So thank you, all Greek people. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, thanks very much. Um, I hope your uh, country is doing all right. You've had a bit of a shit time recently, so uh, obviously our dulcet tones to cheer them up. Yeah, but they've got British tourists going back into their country now, so it's just, it can only get worse. <laughs> Why the hell are they listening to us then? I was, did we not get into the charts in the UK? I was going to say, I just want to thank. I was going to say, I was, I was, I was I'm going to say that again. Um, I was going to say, maybe we shouldn't thank the people of the UK, even though we did get in the charts in the UK as well. Let's not be ungracious, all right? Not everybody in the UK is a fucking roaster. That's true. Just, just about 90, 95% of them. Maybe it was like the people, maybe the people had been to Greece and were listening to the podcast and Greece came back to the UK and had to isolate and listen to the podcast in the UK. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, what was that great podcast we heard when we were in Greece? We should track that down. Where's that from? Scotland. Mm, don't know about that. So talking about really British things, oh. what album are we doing today, Chris? I went big today. Uh, this is something that's been on my mind for a wee while. This is a massive band, like straight out the gate here. I don't see this getting voted in, and I don't particularly care. Um, <laughs> so you're just going to waste our time. <laughs> no, there's as with so many of the episodes we've done, there's a useful conversation to be had. The band is the Arctic Monkeys, and the album is Humbug from 2010. I want to have a conversation about the decisions around this record, what it says about that band, 
because I think it's interesting. I mean, as I said, this is a big band. I mean, this band, for example, got supported by them Crooked Vultures, which for the uninitiated is Josh Homme, John Paul Jones of Lead Fucking Zeppelin and Mr. Dave Grohl, who was in a couple of reasonably successful projects and they supported Arctic Monkeys. So this is a very successful band that doesn't need publicity. But there is a really interesting conversation within this band. And frankly, I kind of want the opportunity to prove that I don't just hate people because they're successful. Right? Because I think there's definitely the danger that we paint ourselves into that corner. You just hate people as soon as they sign to a major label. Mm, no, that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> I mean, I like Bad Religion. Their best albums were on a major label, debatably. Yeah, but okay. um, look, just to preempt this, sometimes when a band gets huge, and especially if our first impressions are kind of indifferent, or if we just miss the boat, you know, sometimes we all go through phases where we tune out of something or we get into a different style of music for a while. Whatever. It just means that the band, as they get huge, they just end up being there, like looming around in pop culture in a big way. But you actually, a lot of the time, we end up not really engaging with them. Like, we don't engage in much detail. We don't really get any sort of... It's like people who uh, miss HBO series as they're going out. It's like me and Sopranos, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, you don't end up with any sort of nuanced picture of the band or their decisions or even really their output and you know maybe a lot of the time certainly a lot of the time that's pretty fair a lot of the stuff is just big stodgy pish but not all of it um and i feel like we're maybe in a position for a lot of listeners who despite (laughs) maybe because of the status of this band might be kind of unaware of them uh, in any detail because they are just a big looming presence that you're like oh well there's nothing there for me to get interested in um and I don't want us to obviously get dragged down into indie hell because you can just end up spaffing on about a band that's already got copious fucking column inches uh, devoted to it. But I think there is definitely something there to discuss and uh, obviously uh, to do that we do need to address a bit of the context. So it's very likely this is going to be two, hopefully not over long episodes where we kind of pick this apart. There's a lot of interesting references and stuff in the process and genuinely I've got a fucking killer nexus at the end of this. Uh, we're nexus into the, the baby son from Teletubbies as chosen by our man Craig down under and I got a total belter so it's worth coming back <laughs> for that alone um, but yeah I mean that all said about the popular culture I kind of want to take your temperature on this one pardon the Covid pun I guess mm. but uh, I mean Mark for example where were you on Arctic Monkeys before I brought this to the table? Um, indifferent I know that another huge band probably one of the Probably the biggest band in the UK of our generation, I would imagine, in terms of popularity. Guitar band, at least, anyway. I remember the first record coming out, whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. I remember A Bit Like Good in the Dance Floor being huge because it was kind of coming at the tail end of all that Strokesy stuff that was happening at that time and obviously who were a huge influence on them and kind of who they wanted to be. Maybe not sonically, but, you know, were definitely influenced mm-hmm. by their level of fame and songwriting yeah. nous, if you... That's, I mean, that's putting it quite politely <laughs> um, so yeah I, I was completely different to them whenever I, whenever I heard a single on the radio I thought yeah it's pretty good pretty good guitar sort of pop music I think that serves the genre quite well I like the fact he uses his Sheffield accent I think that's pretty cool um, I like the fact that they actually like chunky production I think a lot of indie bands can go for always go really weedy these guys definitely don't even though the guitars themselves aren't mega distorted everything sounds fat and big and nice all the time which is pretty cool did, I mean, did they come across as, I know it's a bit of a kind of simple term, but like legit, did they come across as being like a real band? Um, 
I guess everybody's first, well, if you were on MySpace back in the day, everybody's first brush with them was this fucking random band come out of nowhere with this massive song that was just all over MySpace mm-hmm. before they would even sign to a major label, or so it seemed anyway. I don't know if they were signed yeah. to a major label when that video came out, but it certainly there was certainly no feeling that they were signed to a, a reasonable label at that point. So it did feel as, mm-hmm. oh, these, these guys are pretty cool, and then suddenly they were massive. And they seem to have dealt quite well with that fame as well. Yeah, let's talk about MySpace in a wee bit. Um, Dave, what about you, man? I mean, I'm sure you're a bit more familiar with them, but what are your feelings? Yeah, I mean, I I guess they're a band that I've always... Like, legitimacy is the word. They've always seemed legit to me. And I get, you know, I hear the singles and I've listened to the records and I, I enjoy it. I guess it's maybe... It's just maybe not spiky enough for me or it's... You know, but I, I very much, um, I'm very happy that they exist. I know there is space for them, and I know they're not dicks. I kind of feel like they are, I don't know. Yeah, they, they kind of seem to have a legitimacy now, and we'll talk about how they've earned that, you know, with mm-hmm. with their records. But they are now kind of like a sort of national treasure-ish type, like moved up to the level of, they're like a fucking working class radiohead, basically. Um, yeah. And they're allowed to do what what they want to do. Although I don't listen to the the albums very much, I've always I've quite liked them from afar. Mm-hmm. I will allow them to exist. You know, much in opposition to say the Libertines, who I just think are pricks, and I fucking hate them. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. It's a good it's a good comparison. It's it's interesting because I think then we're all coming from a fairly similar place. I think maybe of the three of us, I'm the one that's dabbled the most of them. And the reason is because of this album, because especially because I was such a big fan of Queens of Stone Age that I sought it out when I knew they were working with Josh Hom, which we'll go into in a bit of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as as you guys say, they're, they're, they're a huge band and normally I'd find that a wee bit off-putting, frankly, but did always seem that even if I didn't like everything they were doing, there were a lot of cool ideas in there and it was just, it was authentic, you know, and it's interesting you said the working class radio, it's actually quite a, a, a fun turn of phrase, you know, even the, the, the music's a, obviously a lot less proggy, but it's actually been pretty far out at times, especially recently, we'll talk a wee bit about the albums, just for, I mean, the thing is we take them for granted because we're British, we've got a lot of listeners that aren't British, Although I'm pretty sure most listeners will at least be familiar with Arctic Monkeys. We're not going to have a... We should maybe mention, because Mark mentioned a major label, but they've released stuff on a major label, I think through Warner in the States, but throughout their career, they've been signed to Domino in the UK, you know, which is not an officially major label. So they've maintained Mm -hmm. a level of independence. And they are something like, maybe not the, but one of the biggest selling independent artists of all time. Absolutely, yeah. I mean that uh, that deal they have with Domino, uh, they were approached by the owner of Domino, Lawrence Bell, and they they signed with Domino specifically because they said they loved that home based DIY approach, that labour love thing he does. He only signs bands that he likes musically and also that he likes personally, apparently. So yeah, you're right. They obviously, you know, even from the, I think it was like right from the very uh, beginning, they were there was rumours and papers that they were doing distro via EMI and Epic, although the band denied that right back at the start. And I think some of the sales figures for the first album suggest they probably didn't have massive distro for it, but they certainly do now. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll just throw in a wee bit of background. As Mark mentioned, the Sheffield accent, they're from Sheffield, which is what's that, the north of England. It's just very close to Leeds, um, very working class. Home of Def uh, Leppard. Oh, Def Leppard, <laughs> surely the big partner sound. Um, I mean, Arctic Monkeys, 
pretty hellish name. Uh, a lot of sarcastic explanations for their name uh, are available in various interviews, but none are really confirmed. It seems like they're kind of trolling with it. it. Frankly, it just sounds like a kind of high school band name that's stuck. Um, I think they generally credit its invention to the second guitarist, who is was that Jamie Cook. So it's Alex Turner is the, the front man, the main songwriter, vocalist, guitarist, the sort of person that's on most of the, the, you know, to the fore in most cases. Jamie Cook in second guitar. Matt Helders on drums and vocals. Matt's actually got a fairly prominent role in the band as well. He's become a reasonably successful producer. He sings a few tracks. He's quite heavily involved in it. You know, he's far from just this random guy at the back. Uh, and they're now, and have for most of their career, uh, had Nick O'Malley on bass. Um, Although the founder member was actually a guy called Andy Nicholson, who I believe it was something to do with like just fatigue in the in the first year of being in the band, he just couldn't deal with it. He was replaced by O'Malley temporarily, but then it became permanently for whatever reason. Um, as you guys said, they've made jokes. They've actually got jokes inside their lyrics about wanting to be the Strokes, but you can tell that they were a fair bit too. Some of the other names that were mentioned, I would suggest maybe the Hives from 2000. Uh, they've got that kind of indie punky energy. Uh, the Vines, and that was about 2002, so that was just before they, that was just as they were getting together. I also think going back a little bit earlier, well, a good bit earlier, you've got the likes of The Jam. I think you've got Sham 69, that working class thing. Um, also, I find that their style of music uh, reminds me a lot of the Kinks. Obviously kinks the are kinks- a big one for me, yeah. Yeah, obviously they've got that really gritty, you know, all of the night, you know, you really got me. They've got the riffy stuff that we were talking about, but then with the kinks you've got, you know, all these other much more elaborate things like Lola and stuff like that and uh, Sunny Afternoon. Arctic Monkeys do that. They have chunky, riffy stuff, but they also have this very British, kind of off-kilter indie stuff. Um, One thing I think about them that needs to be mentioned is the style of lyricism. I think Alex Turner's it was a, a masterstroke. He wasn't actually the original singer, but you know, really early on, he became the singer. And it, it was a masterstroke putting him in charge uh, of the lyrics because he's got a really identifiable style. I don't know how many people are familiar with a guy called John Cooper Clark. 
Um, but John Cooper Clarke's a musician and a poet, and he's very famous for what they called like punk poetry. Like a nightclub in the morning, you're the bitter end. Like a recently disinfected shit house, you're clean round the bend. You give me the horrors. Too bad to be true. All of my tomorrows are lousy because of you. You put the shat in shatter. You put the pain in Spain. Your germs are splattered about. Your this this blending of like v- vernacular, uh, like like working class urban slang and prose and it really really astute you know so maybe maybe passed off sometimes has been quite basic but actually like incredibly intelligent stuff and very relatable um and i mean there's a few artists that probably utilize that style uh but i think arctic monkeys are certainly one of the most successful and in fact for the i think it's the closing track on am uh, which is their uh, fifth album that yep. we'll, we'll talk about later. But the, uh, the track I Want to Be Yours, actually, the lyrics are a John Cooper Clark poem, and he's a big fan of them. I want to be a Ford Cortina, I will never rust. If you like your coffee hard, let me be a coffee pot. Charts-wise, ridiculously successful. I mean, even in, even considering that they, they arrived in the after the sort of internet cull began, they've got twenty plus million global sales. Although they've never had a number one US album, which I think is quite interesting. Um, I think other than their debut album, um, Humbug, the one that we're going to talk about in detail, was their lowest charting album in the USA, which is also interesting. Um, what is it called? Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, their most recent album, uh, which we'll get a mention because it's unusual. Uh, that's the fastest selling vinyl album of the millennium. In fact, I think it's of the last 25 years, if I remember rightly. Uh, in the UK, Humbug and the, the album that came after it, Suck It and See, which are quite similar. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, they have similar sales figures of around about 410k, but I mean, some of the other records are multiples of that. And as you said, Dave, they're not just one of the most successful independent bands, they're the first independently signed band in the UK to debut at number one with all six albums. They've yeah. far and away got that record. Their first album actually charted in the, in the UK album charts last year. It's charted numerous times. It's been in the indie charts for 706 weeks. Yeah, which just shows you how fucking relevant they continue to be. Mm-hmm. Um, 2005, I think, I think they actually got together as early as 2002 or something like that, but in 2005, they, they had a, an 18-track demo or something that was kicking about for a while, but they released an EP called Five Minutes with the Arctic Monkeys. Which was a limited press And I think it was just done by themselves Self-released Got a bit of attention for BBC Radio And then they appeared on one of the I think it was the Carling stage One of the smaller feeder stages At Reading and Leeds For bands that are sort of seen as being up and coming And then they were approached by Lawrence Bell and Domino who, who Who they signed with And then you get this first juncture that you know, you've already touched on, I think it's worth talking about MySpace. <laughs> Clearly a bit anachronistic now, um, but I mean their method of breakthrough, which was largely via MySpace and largely via that song I bet that you look good in the dance floor.
was pretty much unprecedented uh, and it, and they just without a mammoth advertising budget you know the, especially the kind of budget usually thrown at bands to try and break them these days they just had this incredible sudden burst of success um, I mean the band claimed they didn't even set up that MySpace that it was originally set up by fans of them that noticed that they didn't have one and so they set it up and then I don't know if it got handed over and they ended up curating it but when that happened to them MySpace was for one sort of fleeting moment seen as being this the precursor for this new way to do music, this democratisation of music, um, a way to circumvent the old ways, the old guard, the gatekeepers, but I mean as is obvious now, that didn't last I mean almost as soon as that became apparent it was monetized. Um, and those kind of patterns of monopolisation and gatekeeping re-emerged so basically the door that they stepped through was quickly barred behind them, but I think that MySpace era is fascinating. I mean, as you said, Mark, that was your first experience of them. But what did you guys make of it? Did Dave? I know you used MySpace because you used to talk to famous folk on it. Uh, Christian old wobblers from Fear Factory. I mean, um, no, it was interesting because, like, for me, MySpace and I guess it's it's still seen very genre orientated for me in terms of like metal and emo and all the stuff we we're talking about last week. And it was bands like, I don't know, fucking like Bring Me The Horizon and Bullet For My Valentine and stuff like that, that I remember coming up through MySpace. And it was bands in Glasgow that were, you know, had thousands and thousands of followers on MySpace. And I'd be like, oh, holy fuck. And then I just, I didn't realise that indie music was happening on it and that um, people without fringes were Mm -hmm. using it. Um, (laughs) But then I remember this coming out. I missed, was I still living at home? I can't remember. I just I just remember seeing it in Olness Morrison's and I was like, fuck, that's a band I, I've kept hearing about. I can't, and I've heard that song and I can't believe they're big enough to be in Morrison's now. But like it was it was in the it was in like the second week that it came out, so it was obviously it was like went to number one. But you know. Can you imagine if we manage to make anything of this podcast one day and it becomes some kind of cult thing, there'll be a little like unsung map of Scotland. You have to go and do a pilgrimage and one of them will be the Allness Morrisons. Yeah, Allness Morrisons will be definitely be there. Uh, Mark, I mean, what was your take on the, the, the MySpace period? It, it did seem to me a bit like Dave says that it was really geared towards emo and stuff, but maybe that was just what we were seeing. Maybe that was just the circles we moved in. Yeah, that, that's definitely just what you were seeing because I remember MySpace being huge for every kind of music at that time. I was not surprised when a band broke through from it, you know. Um, those artists were, were using it for their own ends. I mean, when Tom decided to sell it, one of the people, one of the people that were involved in the consortium that bought it was Justin Timberlake. It was huge for every mm-hmm. kind of artist. You That's know? right. Um, and I think that I mean, at that time, it was really easy on a, on a platform. It would have been really easy, or it was really easy rather, on a platform like MySpace to get like hooked into like the one kind of genre because it was way different than how you shared stuff on like how you share stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter. You know, like it's like significantly different. Um, and it was a much, it was a much more social media was in infancy, so I thought I thought it was really interesting that there was an indie band for sure, but I wasn't surprised because it just seemed to me to be a logical extension of the sudden explosion of stuff that had happened in the early two thousands with the whole, the strokes and the, the hives. This just seemed to be the next, the next yeah. way this was going to go. Um, yeah. It was not long after this that I started up my own music website and was running that, and you know you would people would be sending you MySpace links all the time. Well, no. it was 2006 that Sandy Tom came out with that abomination. Absolutely. I wish I was a punk rocker. I was a punk rocker with flowers in my hair. 
I think we've talked about how her manager basically falsified the amount of views and she got big off pretending that she was doing live streaming but like she was a she was a MySpace personality basically a MySpace artist mm-hmm. so yeah yeah I just I just thought it was all metalcore bands from Aberdeen but it turns out that everybody was fucking using it you know, it's just interesting though because we we are take monkeys. It did seem sort of grassroots, and I like obviously I've got a cynical eye, and I was hyper suspicious. But I was just looking at it. It's like not. I mean, it, this does just seem like a thing that's happened. It does actually seem like there's just been a grassroots embrace mm. of this tune, and it's just everywhere. And then now the TV channels are being forced to respond to that to try and seem relevant. It seemed like the people that used the site were dictating the relevance instead of what tends to try and happen now, which is that they're trying to do it in reverse, which is like they dictate the relevance and then everybody latches on or they simply monopolise the channels of distribution and make it impossible to see anything else. Um, And it's interesting that it it, it was so brief. Uh, I mean, it wasn't long before Facebook kicked in, was it? And I don't know. I mean, all these things, as soon as their potential is revealed, they, they get seized upon. I mean, I kind of, I, I really hope that Justin Timberlake has the last laugh. I really do. Mm-hmm. I really fucking hope that people get a bit like people got fed up with CDs and digital and ended up buying vinyl and record numbers. I really hope people get jaded and fucked off with Facebook and all its bollocks, and vi- like MySpace becomes the sort of digital equivalent of vinyl, where people are like, "Fuck it, I'm going back to MySpace. It's just better. It sounds better. Hear the warmth." I would love to see that take place, man. For me, the very concept of virility and on virility for music begins with this band. You can't, I can't escape that when I hear them. You know, and the lineage can be seen all the way right through to TikTok now, where artists will break out of nowhere. Yeah, you know, it, it really does begin with this band, particularly, especially in the UK. You know, see, just uh, can I just clarify Mark's accent because Mark's got a deep accent. It sounded like he said virility, but he actually said virality. Virality, yeah. <laughs> Um, and that, the two, the two are quite different. Are, that, that, it depends where you depend, <laughs> depends where you are. Um, depends who the band is. Yeah, totally. But you know, I bet you're looking dance for was went to number one in the charts. Uh, so it it worked for that very brief period. I think it worked. It probably worked in much the same way that uh, this is going back. This is going back way before the internet, I suppose. But when Iron Maiden released "Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter" and asked all their fans to buy it over Christmas, which was like the quiet period for that record coming out, and they, everybody bought all the all the versions of it and it went number one. That that I, that would be kind of the modern day equivalent of that, right? All your friends Savvy. see that song and they'll go out and buy actually buy the single because this was pre downloads, mm-hmm. and that's a huge thing for a band that on a like you said an indie label and. <laughs> came through the fucking internet <laughs> yeah I mean as you say uh, smash hit for that year straight to number one and their next single did the same uh, When the Sun Goes Down which I think a lot of people know is Scummy and what a scummy man just give him half a chance I bet he'll rob you if he can can see it in his eyes yeah that he's got a driving ban amongst some other offences Um, but that's not the actual name of it, it got changed uh, But that did the same the following January in 2000 uh, Sorry, Dancefloor was October 2005 Scummy was January 2006 And that's when the album dropped to debut Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not um, 
really high energy indie record as I said earlier a kind of Sham 69 bits of the clash in it as well kind of punk energy but then it's got a much bigger appeal uh, to like mods it, it has like a little mod vibe to it that you know it really took with like, the likes of Oasis fans it is ironic I think that it took Oasis fans given that it's probably much more analogous to the likes of Blur um, I've, yeah I've always seen them like in terms of this new wave of English indie, I've always seen them as the blur much more than. Think about the lyrics to Parklife, that kind of Cooper Clark style yeah. lyri- lyricism. I mean, it's much more in common with that than it does with like Noel Gallagher's lyrics. Um, I mean, the album starts really strong. I mean, it's it's a surprisingly good listen. Although I do think it runs out of steam halfway. I mean, they're a really young band. You can't really criticise them for that um, the early tracks are full of really interesting ideas, I mean seriously if you, if you approach it with an open mind and you're a fan of Fugazi there's stuff in there that you would appreciate Um, and yeah, the lyrics really help propel it along. I think that first tune on it, uh, the view from the afternoon, loads of really innovative guitar parts in it, a couple of really crunchy riffs, a very hooky little chorus. One of the diamond moments that really set their stall out is about 2 minutes 15 into that the song drops out completely for a good few seconds and then comes back with this kind of stereo guitar trade-off syncopated thing that is like pure like Ian McKay, Guy Picciotto brilliant fucking original idea on guitar And I think it just shows that this band were just a good, like, league above a lot of the bands that they were around and showed a lot of growth potential for the future. Uh, the second track in that was about you looking at the dance floor. Alex Turner says that's a shit song and he doesn't want it to be what they're remembered for but I bet they don't mind the oil checks and frankly they probably wouldn't be where they are now if it wasn't for that song I think sometimes you just have to accept that fact you just you have know? to accept that you've written a really fucking catchy as fuck song and it might not Absolutely. be your deepest cut but it is catchy and it's clever for a radio pop song it's sparky and it's funny and it's interesting Mark, what did you think of that first record? Uh, I I really liked Fake Tales of San Francisco. I thought that was a pretty good mm. song. Yeah, that's, really a, that's a great song. Kick me out, kick me out. I don't want to hear you. Kick me out, kick me out. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. Fake Tales of San Francisco echo through the air. Really nice chorus, and, and when the sun goes down as well, um, playful really playful at the start and then it goes into something a bit dirty um, but yeah I really can't get behind any Fugazi comparison in this band though mate sorry but that's a that's, that's <laughs> yeah, a I thought you were me. stretching a little bit <laughs> 
I, I know I, you're not comparing you're them to Fugazi, but like they have guitars. Let's put it this way, right? Fugazi said they wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for Gang of Four, mm-hmm. and I think Arctic Monkeys show a lot of the same sensibilities. That kind of yeah. like, that nuanced guitar interplay. I'm not saying they are on the same genetic line, but I'm saying they've branched off from a similar point of ideas. That bit in the, uh, the view from the afternoon where the guitars break down like that. It's very interesting. It's a very, very interesting bit of guitar music, and it's not typically indie. It's it's somewhere in between indie and punk, and I think that that's um, that's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying the songs sound like Fugazi or are approached like Fugazi, but there is a there's an innovation and a willingness to sort of break the mold in there that I think is consistent between the two bands. Honestly, I th- I think if people go at it with an open mind, they, they will see, like, all right, shit, these young guys weren't just looking for easy options. A lot of people do go out there and just try and sound exactly like the Strokes. They weren't doing that. Some of the some of that kind of shit, I definitely think, probably comes from the stuff with the Beatles and that, which he was huge, Alex Turner was hugely influenced Fuck by. Fuck the know. Beatles. Yeah. But you, you can't, I mean... I mean, you can't talk about English indie pop music without talking about the Beatles. Beatles invented all of this music, <laughs> and his, his dad was a huge fan as well. So like he's get like he's a huge Everyone's fan of Beatles. Dad's a huge fan. Of yeah, the no, Beatles. but like his dad was a music teacher as well, right? So I guess it, the, he was probably quite proficient. It looked like he was quite proficient from an early yeah, age. D- don't get me wrong. I, yeah, I'm, I'm being childish, right? I get it. I get, and the Beatles influences pop up a lot, especially the John Lennon influences. I would suggest, but. Mm-hmm. I think it's tempered with a lot of like punk and post-punk sensibilities and I think bands like Gang of Four are that common ancestor between what bands like this did over here and what bands like Fugazi and stuff did in the States. Art punk. And it is kind of like bordering on art punk at points. I think there's a lot of wire in it as well. Those kind of things, you know. Arctic Monkeys could do a killer cover of Outdoor Minor. No blind spots in the Do you, do you know that uh, their first gig was recorded? I didn't know that. And uh, it actually has four of the original songs as four covers, which is the Beatles, the White Stripes, the Undertones, and the Datsuns, which is a totally bizarre influence. <laughs> yes, uh, it shows the, the time it was happening at, yeah. Yeah. Um, Fucking Datsuns, where that are they now? Age of 15, <laughs> mental. Um, so they followed that. Well, actually, they, I say they followed it, but it kind of crosses over. So the second album was Favourite Worst Nightmare, which came out in 2007. It was recorded immediately after their tour cycle for the debut, which obviously was quite a long tour cycle because it took so well. Um, I think they'd actually been writing and playing stuff on the tour from that album as it went, like live road testing it. Um and so there's a real consistency in sound and I think there's a real consistency in the energy behind it. Um, they maintain a lot of momentum because basically as soon as they're back, they're, they're out and doing another thing. Uh, it's really high energy. I think the opening song in that, Brainstorm, is a... Brian Storm. Sorry, Brian Storm is Brian a terrific Storm. example of where the band were coming from. Um, I do think the album feels like the uh, track listing, the arrangement of it was slightly more considered to avoid that sort of drop-off experience that you get with the first one. It's a bit more evenly spread. Um, Brainstorm first and foremost, shows that they could really fucking play. The drummer really gets a, a look in 
in a big way. I remember the video for it's quite clever as well. You know, boy playing drums outside in a kind of working class sort of state surrounded by tower blocks and stuff like that. Um, and it also showed they weren't content to just churn out safe music. Um, I think. Yeah, funnily enough, I mean, we laughed at you for mentioning Fugazi, but like the beginning of Brainstorm is basically an indie mashuga. So, yeah, I'll give you that one. I'll take that as an apology. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, this song's got really great beats in it. Um, the arrangement is really clever. And there's actually, you know, some of those drum fills do this thing where they sort of tumble almost off the page before mm. they snap back in. So it's really, really uh, ambitious again, you know, very quickly showing they weren't going to just take easy answers. Um, for me, I think the fifth track in that, Fluorescent Adolescent, which I think is probably known to a lot of people as best you ever had, because that's the sort of refrain in it. Everything's an order in a black hole. Nothing seems to put it in the past, though. A bloody memory's like an Antabasco. Remember when you used to be a rascal? Oh, the boys are slag. The best you ever had. The best you ever had. It's a bit of a kind of cheeky, chappy, jaunty one. Um, it kind of gets under my skin a wee bit. I think it kind of gets under a lot of the skin of people that don't like Arctic Monkeys, but it's definitely a fan favourite. Um, the seventh one in that, I think, is one that deserves a mention. A track called Do Me A Favour. Which is the first sign of the surprisingly mature and darker, slower thing that, that they had ahead of them. Um, it's, it's got some really nice melancholy melodies early on, and the ending of that song it has a it has a big end where they take a, a, a kind of line from earlier on and just kind of like pump it up from around two and a half minutes. And it's just objectively great songwriting. I think that tune really says a lot about where they were going to end up. If this house is a circus, uh, it's got the same carnivalesque vibe that comes up in Humbug. Absolutely, and in every single way, it's, it's got that, that vaudeville almost feel. You know, Do you know, um, I'll throw a reference in there. That exact vibe that you're talking about reminds me repeatedly of The Coral. Remember the band The Coral? Mm. The Coral, yeah. yeah. And also that band that we've done before that I re- couldn't remember again, um, the guys from Brighton with the uh, Hot Rod. It's Matchbox yeah. Bailing Disaster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, they've got that same kind of Gonzo Blackpool Pier, you know, Wurlitzer thing happening. Mm-hmm. I really liked Five O Five as well. I thought it was a really good closer to the album. Yeah, um, it's got a really nice. It's got a really nice lyric and a really nice vocal melody, I think. 
And I feel like with these two albums, you know, after this record, there's a kind of closing of a chapter because it's like their infancy, you know what I mean? Or their adolescence, if you will, as a band. The two albums work well together. They have a really similar and consistent sound. They're going in a direction. And then what happens is, to me, quite a key event, the whole notion of Alex Turner in particular gets kind of modified by when he takes part in Last Shadow Puppets. Uh, this this project that he embarked on by a guy called Miles Kane, who was a member of a band called The Rascals, uh, and who also, I think it's interesting, is second, uh, his two cousins were both the founder members of the Coral, um, which maybe it's coincidence, but it seems relevant to me somehow. Um, there was a, a kind of two-year gap here where he did this project, and I think what you see is his wider aspirations regarding his personal profile, his kind of cool image versus bratty wee lad. And I think Arctic Monkeys in a band, as a band from this point, uh, and especially Alex, definitely begin a slow transition towards sex symbols. Um, there's there's a single by Last Shadow Puppets called Miracle Aligner. Tell them what you has this really breathy, slower-paced, lower-key vocal, and the cool factor is much, much more apparent, and he really brings that into his repertoire, you know, the hairstyle changes. I mean, whether or not the sex symbol thing is down to how fans began to react to him, or whether it was a, a deliberate move, or what's probably more likely a combination of the two, it's not immediately obvious, but <laughs> I will say... Arctic Monkeys definitely make a much smoother transition into sex symbol territory than the likes of Mumford and Sons. Do you remember when Mumford and Sons <laughs> suddenly came out in leather tuxedos? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well. Coincidentally, it seemed to happen around about the same time it happened to uh, Kings of Leon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's the thing. These bands sort of, they, they, they hit a kind of a ceiling and then they have to decide where they're going to go. I think Arctic Monkeys hit a bit of a ceiling after Favourite Worst Nightmare, and they decided, you know, we need to musically completely expand our horizons here, and then that sort of aesthetically altered the band as well. They slowed it down, they lowered the key of the vocals especially, you know, he wasn't singing like, ah, 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 he wasn't yelping anymore. Um Last Shadow Puppets, I'm not, not a massive fan of them. I do, I do, Miracle Aligner's a good song, Um but, you know, by and large, they don't really jump out to me. I don't know if you guys have listened to them much. I hate that first album with a burning passion. Right. Yeah, I'm not into it at all. <laughs> but I think it, it does play a key part, though, in, in his development, especially in Turner's development and what he, maybe how he saw himself, maybe how other people saw him, you know. It's got that sort of Damon Albarn branching out sort of quality to it where he's suddenly shown that he's mm-hmm. a bit more worldly and has bigger ambitions, you know. Um, and I think I just since Humbug, which came out next, they have just appeared to slow down on each subsequent album. Now we're going to come back to Humbug in detail, um, but we'll skip past that to what I think is like the second album of the second phase, Suck It and See, which came out in 2011. Now again, they've done that thing of bringing out two albums in two years back to back, maintaining momentum, and two albums that are they pair quite nicely. Suck mm-hmm. It and See doesn't have the Josh Home production. Um, but it does musically have a lot of the a lot of similar notes, uh, literally and uh, figuratively, obviously. Um, 
coming from that same similar place to Humbug, but with a touch more polish because uh, um, James Ford, who had done Favourite Worst Nightmare. I mean, Josh Holm does make a musical appearance on it. He's on a track called All My Own Stunts. Um, the band at the start of the album seem to lean a bit more into the British indie thing. Um, it does have some really odd inclusions throughout it. It's got some, some pretty ambitious twists and turns. There's a track on it that's a bit of a live favourite called Brick by Brick, which is a totally unremarkable and pretty tokenistic attempt to sort of shine a light uh, on the drummer Matt. find it's such a gimmicky tune man it's a really underwhelming bit of music compared to other bits of what they've done uh, but they, they keep shoehorning it into live shows and stuff I, I can't tell if maybe it's for some inexplicable reason it's popular with the fan base or whatever um, you can still hear Josh Holmes influence which we'll discuss shortly um, on things like the kind of silky verses of uh, Hellcat Spangled Shalalala She flicks a red hot revelation the tip of a tongue It does a dozen somersaults and leaves you supercharged um, That's got that really drawled cool guy sort of singing and there's also some big beefy riffery there's a track called Don't Sit Down Because I Moved Your Chair That's a good song which, Yeah, great, great tune really simple riff Has just oodles of especially older Queens of the Stone Age all over it. I think that last one, yeah, it, it definitely sort of reaffirms what is emerging as a growing desire to transition into being a rock band, you know, like our mm. 5A's WK um, and, and moving away from like indie darlings and sort of bouncy, bouncy little cheeky chappies. Yeah, I, I, um, I think I think Humbug is their development. They've stopped seeing themselves as like Joy Division or Blur and they see themselves more as like the Who or Led Zeppelin or something. They're like, oh yeah, we can yep. have a big fucking British legacy here. So interestingly, um, that album was written not just by Turner, but that band actually got together and rehearsed all the songs before and coming up with the ideas before, before instead of actually going into the studio with rough songs and then just using the overdubs to make them work. It's the first time they did that, which probably explains why there's a song with Matt on it because um, they actually wrote it as a band probably for the first time yeah. since the first album. That, I mean, that song, though, sounds like the kind of thing you jam out and practice and then you just ding it. I, 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 I don't know. It's, I guess they can afford to do it. I just I just, I just, just don't really dig it. Um, the track I mentioned, All My Own Stunts, the one that features Josh Holm, it's, it's a really suitable and appropriate kind of diminished moment to get him involved. It works well. Um, it, I mean, frankly, it could easily be a Queens of Stone Age tune, and frankly, it's probably better than the bulk of what Queens of Stone Age were putting out by this stage. I mean, Queens of Stone Age had definitely hit a kind of creative dip, um, and it's just a pretty strong bit of music. 
for me, there's two tunes in this album that really stand out, and they're towards the, the set. They're in the second half of the album. Pile Driver Waltz, I just think, is one of their best bits of music. I etch the face of a stopwatch on the back of a raindrop, and did a swap for the sand in an hourglass. I controversially. The, verse, uh, the verses are in 4-4, four, four. they're not in waltz timing, but then the, the choruses are, I think it's dreamy, it's effortless, it's just this brilliant, simple guitar pop. If you're walking down the road on a sunny day such as I was today and it comes on, it's a total joy. I think it's a fucking brilliant, unpretentious bit of writing. A lot of time for it. And I also think the title track, Suck It and See, has loads of that kind of Elvis Costello jangly genius to it. That maybe nods towards a lot of sixties pop, as well as maybe some of that kind of English eighties stuff like Echo and the Bunny Men or the Psychedelic Furs. Um, I think those two tunes are really, really excellent contemporary indie, whilst they also have a little bit of retro to them. Pell Driver Walks was actually on the Submarine soundtrack, which was originally as a solo song. Yeah, well, he he wrote that as a as a, a solo soundtrack. It, it works really well. That's that score to that film as well. But yeah, the the fully arranged version of it is just I think fucking brilliant. I love the guitar tones in it. Um, I love the choice of reverbs, and it's just it's a really lush sounding song. So, I mean, then a really big thing happens, and they release AM in two thousand and thirteen. AM absolutely perplexes me, right, as an album, and. That is not for a minute because I think it's bad, but it's a really mid-tempo, really dark indie rock album, and it's, it's, I mean, it's not even got the playfulness of some stuff by, like, Queens of the Stone Age. There's obviously standout songs in it, but there's a few that are probably quite unremarkable, albeit, you know, well-executed kind of 12-bar blues type moody crooning things, but... I think one key thing about this album is it seems to correspond to that image change that the band have undertaken, morphing into like this sexy teddy boy East End sort of rascal, almost, um, you know, this is when that kind of fascination with, what's the Killian Murphy series called again? Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders, it was starting to, to, to come through and it, it really seems to play into that. I mean, the thing with this album is like, how long can you ride that train? Because, I mean, for me, even as somebody with reasonably positive feelings on the band, I do think at times in this record it starts to get quite dull. The pace, there's a, there's less variety in the tempos. Um, I mean, it also maybe stands as a tribute to their marketing department that they were able to use the, their credibility to shift in such massive numbers an album that doesn't really seem to conform to what I would have thought would have been the template of contemporary indie success. I mean, the the, the singles of it, Do I Want to Know, is such a bizarre hit single. Have you 
got color in your cheeks Do you ever get that feel that you can't shift the tide that sticks around like summits in your teeth I mean, the, the streaming numbers in this song are fucking eye-watering. Mm-hmm. One, and a, one and a quarter billion plays on Spotify Yeah, it just, alone. It just falls out of the top 100 streamed songs of all time, Spotify. I mean... And when it's like sludge pop. It's it's like like that is literally what I would call this song. It's so strange. I mean, I I, I think it's an okay song. I'm not a huge fan of it. I, I just but I have to admire the boldness. <sighs> what. They found like that American rock radio equation that so many bands try and fail to get, um, or so many British bands, you know, like Oasis went over and tried to do it. And, you know, all of these Brit- huge British bands went over and tried to slightly tailor their sound, like pair it back a little bit, incorporate the blues a little bit more, but also just darken it, yet simplify it. And it's like that sort of Joshua Tree vibe. It's, um, but like more groovier and, mm. you know, less abysmal. It's, <laughs> <laughs> they've just simplified it and it do- it doesn't necessarily sound like it's been uh, a team of writers have sat around, but it sounds like the band have cleverly sat around and gone, all right, let's get rid of superfluous bullshit. Let's focus a little bit more let's not try like oh here's our little Elvis Costello bit or here's our it's like they've taken everything and simplified it into one very I don't know <sighs> yeah I, 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 I get why it's big because it's just fucking simple it's there it's like alright here we are it's branded it's got very you know bold Artwork, yeah, bold, absolutely. Aesthetic. I think that's key. You know, do you remember when this album came out? It was absolute blanket promotion. Yeah, like that, that, that sort of wave graphic was fucking everywhere. Which is in sharp contrast to the first album, which we're kind of praising for the fact that it succeeded despite not having a huge advertising budget thrown at it. Yeah, like this, like AM had an enormous advertising budget thrown at it. It was fucking everywhere, um, and the video and stuff like that was obviously very iconic for this tune. I just. I, I get what you're saying, absolutely, you're right, they've stripped it down, but it's so slow and kind of morose mm. that I find it really surprising that it, that it succeeded. I don't I don't dislike it, I just think it's really odd. Um, the second single of that as well, was it Are You Mine? Mm-hmm. It, was that a single? Yep. It's the second track. Again, has that sort of Queens of the Stone Age blues, smoothie blues thing, but it doesn't strike me as an obvious pop single. Um, I do take your point, like by, I think it's track four, the song Arabella, almost, the verse almost has like a Pharrell vibe to it. My days and best when the sunset gets itself behind that little lady sitting on the passing Albeit that the chorus is like pure 70s rock Um, And the ninth track is total pop hook 
you know, knowing their audience now, uh, why do you only call me when you're high? And I'm trying to change your mind Left you multiple missed calls And to my message you reply Why'd you only call me when you're high? High Why'd you only call me when you're high? Because that is absolutely the kind of shit that, you know Boys and girls that are into Arctic Monkeys are going to share right, left and centre, even just for its title. Um, I think uh, it sounds like top shop music, you know, mm-hmm. They've, they, without without uh, abandoning the vibe of the album, they have definitely managed to write a top shop track with that. And that's no small achievement, given how odd I find the album generally. I mean, I... I <sighs> It really confuses me. It just—it's one of those albums that really throws off my my my, my radar. Um, I mean, I'm fair play to them. I mean, it, certainly if this was in, if this is what I'm listening to in the charts, or if this is what I'm listening to when I go into a fucking store to buy groceries, and it's not WAP, and it's not Taylor Swift, I'm fucking delighted. I'm just I'm just surprised by it. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh... It has six singles. It is the highest charting, highest selling album of all time. And it is just a bit... It feels like one of those albums that, that, that deserves to be one of the highest selling albums of all time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like Arctic Monkeys could have just stopped after two albums and that would have been like their legacy sealed as a Northern English working class act. And then they explored. And then AM is like, they've tried everything out. They've evolved. And then they've just suddenly become... Oh yeah, we are one of the big fucking bands now, um, and uh, and yeah, I'm like, fuck it, yeah, they deserve it. I'm not angry about it. That's a really interesting point that you've just finished on there, and I think we should finish on it because I want to hold that point for one week in the ether and use it as a lens to look at Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, their most recent record. They are fucking huge at this point. I think they're self assured, really feeling confident, like they can make bold decisions and get away with it and I think that's what comes to pass so let's break there audience next week we're going to come back with Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino then we're going to look at Humbug in detail and I, I don't know about you guys but I've got a cracker of a nexus I've got a nice one it's not huge but it's uh, it gets a little bit political but um, yeah looking <laughs> forward to it nice 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 alright troops well see you next week I guess have a nice time. Hope nobody gets COVID, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we can ask for in these days. <laughs> One entire week in this room. Yeah, we'll try it. All right, bye. Ciao. Bye. Bye.